Well, I'm going to begin tonight by sharing a text I received um, earlier this week that came at just the perfect time for me. Um, I was in the midst of considering a direction for this evening's message and it arrived. And not only does it set the table nicely um, for us as we move into chapter uh, 6 and 7, um, but I think it's going to resonate with many of us. The text said this, one of the things that I've been thinking on quite a bit since the sermon, this was last week, is how we placate guilt. Guilt can be aggressive and harsh, and we make the same grave mistake that our first parents made in attempting to cover over our guilt with new fig leaves. All kinds of distractions and excuses and assumptions. You mentioned 1 John 1, 9 in your sermon, and I think that's vital. We are ransacked by guilt because we do not believe the promises of God that we can boldly approach him in grace and be forgiven. It's not a one time realization. It's a constant receiving and resting in Christ, pleading for help with our unbelief. And I think that's a really, really good diagnosis. I think at best we forget and at worst we don't believe that we can in fact boldly approach God in grace and be forgiven. We forget and don't believe that God's desire for us in both creation and redemption was to dwell among and fellowship With a people in a state of Sabbath rest. In a state experienced by Adam and Eve. That state experienced by Adam and Eve in the garden that they disrupted due to their sin. And the only way to regain that was, or the only way for that to be repaired was for God to do it. And He did. He repaired it. He took action. He displayed divine mercy and grace and restored what was lost. He did, or he answered the question, what would it take for God to once again dwell with his people, dwell among them and fellowship with them? He answered the question in the words of Psalm 15, who is able to sojourn in the Lord's tent and dwell on his holy hill? He answered the question, the words of Psalm 24, who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? And he did it in a way that David would write these words that he he was confident that the Lord had set a table or prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies and that he would what? Dwell in the house of God. Of the Lord forever. He was confident in that. But how did he do that? What did, what did God do to bring that about? What was God's merciful and gracious action? Well, the answer is he called a people out of slavery and bondage. He condescended and tabernacled in their midst. He provided atonement through a sacrificial Uh, through, Through a substitutionary sacrifice. And Leviticus, what we've been studying in Leviticus, not only shows us how that was displayed in the life 
of Israel. But throughout our study, we've seen that Leviticus points to the one through whom that was ultimately and eternally experienced. And of course, that one is the Lord Jesus. Our text tonight, and I, and I threw Ernie for a loop a little bit. It says in your bulletin that we were going to read verse uh, chapter eight or ver, chapter six, verse eight through chapter seven, thirty-eight, and we didn't. But that is the text as a whole. It's a subsection wrapping up the larger section of chapters one to seven. Um, but if you read the text this week, and of, co- and of course we didn't, we just read those six verses, uh, you noticed a couple uh, of additions, but really what you probably noticed was that this subsection is really a repeat of everything that we've covered from chapters 1 to 7, only from a different perspective. In these verses, verse 8 of chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 30, uh, 38, is is from the perspective of the priests, it describes the same, again, with two additions, but the same sacrifices, only it comes from their perspective on how the offerings were to be brought, what they were to do with them, how they were to respond, or, or the things that they were do, to do with those sacrifices. And it is a large section. So what I determined to do, and as that text came, it was affirmed, I I decided I'm not going to walk through this large passage verse by verse. What I decided to do is draw out three main points from this text. And by doing so, it would also not only help us with this text, but serve as a summary for the, the chapters or what we've covered to this point. And my hope is, going back to that text, my hope is that by doing so, we will leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And that we will therefore be more confident in, resting more fully in, and trusting more deeply in what God has done for us and what He has given us. So... For that to happen, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at our text. Let's pray together. Father, would you, by your spirit, allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption. A story that you have graciously made us a part. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus. And I would ask that you would help us to understand them. And may we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. May we leave more confident in, resting more fully in, and trusting more deeply in Him and what He has done for us and gifted to us. And I pray these things in Him who is our once for all sacrifice. Amen. And amen. You'll find the outline in the back of your bulletin. We're going to have three points. These are the three main points we're going to draw out of the text tonight. The sufficiency of the atonement, the necessity of absolute holiness, and the sufficiency of... Uh, of the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in the security of assurance. So the sufficiency of the atonement, the necessity of absolute holiness, and the security of assurance. Let's look first at the sufficiency of the atonement. I'm sure you heard as, as Ernie was reading five times, uh, the Lord says the fire of the altar. I'm sorry, three times in these opening five verses, the Lord says the fire of the altar shall be kept burning. 
twice he says, it shall not go out. And if you've ever been camping on a cold night, or if you did what Daniel did for us a few weeks ago, and smoke uh, large, uh, large amounts of meat, you know that that is not an easy task. It takes a watchful eye, it takes uh, sleeplessness or a lack of sleep, it takes some careful and strategic removal and elimination of ashes. It is, it is not easy. And the question inevitably rises when we read that, why was the fire not to go out? And we need to be careful in how we answer because the Lord doesn't exactly explain word for word in the passage on why that is so. But I, I believe we can, however, by understanding or looking back on the offerings in general and the burnt offering in particular, we can draw a conclusion on why that's the case. If you'll remember when we set the context for our study of Leviticus, the Lord had determined to dwell among his people, something that he had not done since the garden. But when the tabernacle is built and he descends and his presence descends upon the tabernacle, no one is able to approach even Moses. So the dilemma has been presented. The Lord is there. How are the people going to dwell or how is the Lord going to dwell in their midst? How are they going to fellowship with him? Because what is holy cannot dwell with what is unclean. And so something had to be remedied. And back in Exodus 29, the Lord makes the purpose of the sacrificial system very clear. He says this, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Where I will meet with you to speak to you there, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests and I will dwell among the peoples of Israel and will be their God. So he's going to remedy the situation. He's going, he is going, he is taking the initiative. He is going to do And make possible what he had come to do. Now, if you remember the burnt offering, including included in this sacrifice, they were to kill the animal. They were to drain the blood. They were to throw the blood on the side of the altar of burnt offering. And then they were to burn the entire animal, whether it was a bull or a goat or a lamb or birds. It depended on the means of the individual. They brought a particular animal to fit their means. And so they would also have to burn those offerings or bring those offerings both morning and evening. So we're talking about a lot of ashes. And we're talking about a fire that needed to continually burn to burn those entire animals. And the, the ashes had to be removed in such a way that embers remained. But also so that air could get around that so that the fire would remain. Now, why was that important? Well, again... The entire animal had to be sacrificed. And when you add to that fact, and and nothing was to remain from that sacrifice, but when you add to that, that the fire on the altar, as we'll see next week in Leviticus 9, the the fire had come down from the Lord. We get a pretty good idea when we take all of those things together, why it was not to go out. There are kind of four conclusions that I thought about in regards to answering this question. And first is this, the fire represented God's holy righteous and just presence among his people. That's why the writer of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. 
Secondly, it also communicated the fact that to dwell in the presence of the Lord, a sacrifice for atonement had to be made. Blood had to be shed. Something had to die. Thirdly, because that fire was not to be or was to be kept burning, that atonement was always necessary, always available. It was continual. And so lastly, as a result, it communicated that the atonement was enough. The atonement was sufficient. It was what God had ordained. It is what God had established. It is what God brought about. Atonement had to be made. Atonement was in fact made. But atonement had to be made on a regular basis. It was continual. And therefore, there wasn't anything else to add to it. There were no more steps. There was no more work to be done. There was nothing to supplement it. The atonement was enough. Now, there are a couple of points that I think are important for us tonight as we consider that fact that the atonement is sufficient. The atonement was sufficient for the Israelites at that time in the wilderness. The atonement is sufficient for us as well. But there's a difference. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently. It's a great word here. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added this, behold, I have come to do your will. He being Christ does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will we that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let me say that again since I butchered it. And by that will. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that the atonement that is needed to dwell with and fellowship with the Lord has now been accomplished once for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been accomplished. Each of the sacrifices in Leviticus... Not only point to Christ, they were fulfilled by him. He made purifications for sins or purification for sins. He sat down having made that once for all sacrifice, not having to be done again. It was enough. But having sat down, he continues even now to intercede on our behalf. So his his work is continual. He continues to serve as our great high priest. And the bottom line is he is enough for you. He is enough for me. He is sufficient. His atonement is sufficient. His work is sufficient both now and forever. And it's because of him that we that we know we can dwell in his house and dwell in his house with him forever. 
And that leads me to the second second point. Our job, our job as believers, our job as a kingdom of priests is to keep the fire going, so to speak. And what do I mean by that? I simply mean that we keep the fire going by continually resting in, but also proclaiming that the atonement is sufficient. We continually proclaim Christ and his sacrifice for sinners. We proclaim that sin separates every man, woman, boy, and girl. And that there's nothing that's going to remedy. There's nothing that they can do in and of themselves to remedy that fact. God has provided the way. God has provided atonement through the blood of Christ. He laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice. Willingly laid himself down to do what we could never do for ourselves. He offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for all who are ever repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ. And we are to continually proclaim that. We are to continually keep that message before ourselves and before other people. We must never let it go out. We, and we keep it burning as we gather for worship week in and week out because we, we sing and we pray and we read and preach his word. We speak of a common and share a common confession. And then we come to the Lord's table and we do what? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're to proclaim that message to our family members and to our friends and to our co-workers and in our neighborhoods. And to any and everybody that we have opportunity. We are to share the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, whether here in northwest Arkansas or in Armenia or Turkey. And from the passage that Daniel read earlier, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's how we keep the fire burning. Proclaiming the truth and the, the importance and the truth of the atonement and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that leads me to the second point, the necessity of absolute holiness. The perpetual fire not only points to that sufficiency of the atonement, it also points to that necessity of absolute holiness. The sacrifices were made, they were made to cleanse individuals as we studied. They're made to cleanse individuals, but also to, to cleanse the tabernacle. Anything that sin had touched had become defiled, stained, and contaminated. And that which was unclean needed to be made clean. And it was made clean through that shed blood. That which was common had had to be consecrated and set apart as holy. But the perpetual fire wasn't the only thing that pointed to that fact. We also saw, we've seen, and we read through the rest of this passage, that there were sacrificial procedures and guidelines that needed to be followed specific things that needed to be done to to provide that as well as priestly garments. And it's the priestly garments that I want to uh, focus my attention on for, for just a minute. The priests had a specific attire that they had to wear to minister in the tabernacle. And you can read about that in Exodus 39. But what's interesting in this passage is that they had to take that attire off and put on something else to take care of the ashes. And they did that because whatever they were wearing in the tabernacle to minister could not be unclean or unholy. It, it had to remain clean. It had to remain holy. And so, it, and of course, this was symbolic in nature. 
Right? The, the attire was completely symbolic. The priests, as those who represented the people, and therefore they had to be holy. And because they were not, they not only had to carry out sacrifices on their own behalf first, before the sacrifices for the people, but they also had to wear this holy attire. They weren't themselves holy, but they at least had to look the part. And Lincoln Duncan draws... Attention to a perfect example of this in Zechariah chapter 3. And if you have been reading chronologically through the Bible this year, you just read this passage two weeks ago. But in Zechariah chapter 3, verses, in verse 1, it begins this way. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Dr. Duncan comments on this passage. He says, so we see Joshua standing before the Lord, unable to fulfill his function of uh, priesthood uh, mediation and intercession because he's clothed with filthy garments. But what do those filthy garments symbolize? He says the iniquity of Israel. What does the Lord do? How does God remedy the situation? It is by taking away the iniquity of Israel. And what symbolizes the taking away of the iniquity of Israel? The clothing of Joshua in festal garments. In garments appropriate for a priest to come before the Lord. Now we've said all along, since we got here, we're, we're grateful that we don't come with ram and goat in tow, right? And we also are grateful that we don't come and we didn't have to dress in our pre, with our priestly garb on tonight. We didn't have to dress in, in the priestly garb. We, and that doesn't mean that anyone can come into the Lord's presence in and of ourselves without a change of clothing or, or a thought to what we have on. And I'm not talking about whether you have on shorts or a tie. Last week, if you remember, we used accounting language to help us Think about the atonement. We said that our sins were placed upon Christ's ledger and he paid the debt. Right? He took our liabilities upon himself. He paid the debt. His assets were placed upon our ledger. And so our account, you know, all of our debits were removed and, and we now have Christ's work credited to ours. It's a way of describing imputed righteousness. We've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ His perfect life imputed to us. Our sins imputed to Him. It's called the divine exchange. In priestly clothing language, we have been robed in His righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. As a bridegroom, uh, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We've been clothed with the robes of righteousness. And that's why we sang last week. 
If you'll remember, we come with His righteousness on. Our our humble offering to bring the judgments of God's holy law leave us separated. It's only our Savior's obedience and blood that hides all our transgressions. It's that robe that's wrapped around us. It's why we just sang moments ago, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide. Let me hide, hiding within the clothes of Christ, hiding within his righteousness that's been imputed to us. But let's also not forget that what we heard over and over through our study of Galatians and Ephesians as well. As those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, what are we called to do? We're called to put off our old selves and put on Christ. Put on the new. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What are we to do? We're to be the same day in and day out. Right? Holiness is expected. We're going to read in Leviticus later as we get later on in the book. We're going to read that God calls us to be holy for he is holy. Peter repeats that in his book. We've been called to... To live lives that reflect the, the clothes that we have on. The person who we have on. That's why Peter says later on in the passage that we read. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our lifestyles should be consistent with who we are when we come into this place to worship. Holiness is a necessity. Thanks be to God that our own personal holiness is not a prerequisite or ground or grounds for our living with the Lord in the Lord's house forever. It's Christ's. Holiness, but we are to live in light of that. We're to respond to in to respond to what God has done for us in Christ. And we're to live out of that grace. We are to strive and rest in our pursuit of holiness. And that brings us to the last point, the security of assurance. Again, I, I think. I, I think the text hit it right on the head because we all struggle here. We, we struggle with the assurance and I think it's easy, I think it's easy for us, or let me, I'll, I'll speak personally. It has been easy for me to overlook the literal experience of the Israelites in the midst of all those sacrifices going on. I mean, if you think about it, as one commentator brought to my attention this week, just consider the sights and the smells and the activity, um, the hands-on participation that would have had to had to occur. Think of potentially the chaos of the temple. But if you just get in your minds the things that we've been reading through and studying and 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 just imagine what it would have been like. They would have seen blood everywhere all of the time. 
And the blood, though, would have been a reminder that they had been cleansed of their sin. They would have seen it all the time, but it would have been a reminder that a death had taken place on their behalf. It would have been a reminder that a substitute had died in their place. The perpetual fire, they would have seen the glow. And it would have been a constant reminder of the presence of the Lord. But it also would have been a reminder that, again, a death had to occur for atonement to take place. But it was a reminder that atonement had indeed been provided for. The smoke rising from the altar, they would have seen it coming up from the altar at all times. And it would have been, again, a reminder that what they had offered was a sweet aroma. They would have been reminded that fellowship had been restored. And and then think about it, when they saw the food being eaten by the priests. Again, another reminder. They had brought that sacrifice. And they would have seen the priest eating of the sacrifice. And the priest would have remained alive. They wouldn't have died. And so they would have known that it must have been holy because the priest was eating it. And so it provided a reminder that what God had done for them had actually taken place and had been received. And so every single reminder along the way would have provided assurance for them that what God had said he was going to do, he had in fact done. It would have been a reminder and assurance that God was dwelling with them. It was assurance of their atonement. It was assurance of their forgiveness. It was assurance of their right standing. It was assurance of their cleansing. It was assurance of their fellowship. And that's why the passage I read earlier from Exodus 29 wraps up this way. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons. I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. But it ends this way in verse 46. And they shall know that I am their God. All of that going on. Everything they would have seen. Everything they would have participated in. Everything they would have smelled. Everything would have been an assurance. They would have known that he was their God. And they were His people. It provided assurance. And brothers and sisters, again, going back to the text, we are ransacked with guilt. And we talked about it last week. We're we're ransacked with appropriate guilt. We're talking about appropriate guilt, not not inappropriate guilt. We're talking about the guilt of our sin and we carry that. And, And we lay it down at times, but at other times we pick it back up again. It's very easy to do. And we walk, and it is. It's a continual process of reminding ourselves that it has been dealt with. But we forget, don't we? We forget, and in some cases, maybe someone here just don't truly believe yet that God has done what He said He will do. And so we need to be reminded, and... And can I tell you that we have a greater assurance than the Israelites did? I hope that's not going too far. But I want us to think about three assurances in particular. And the first is this. We have the assurance of Christ's sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or an animal, but the Son of God. We have the sacrifice of Christ. He made an offering of himself on our behalf. 
we're not trusting the blood of bull or goats. We're trusting in the Son of God. We're trusting in the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, God saved us by Himself, from Himself, for Himself. And that's absolute assurance. We're trusting in the Lord. Secondly, we have the assurance of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We have the assurance of his resurrection and ascension after offering himself as a full and final sacrifice. What did he do? He sacrificed himself for our expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, purification, satisfaction. All those T-I-O-N words. But what did he do? He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven as what? As a sweet aroma to the Lord. His resurrection and ascension provides us the assurance that what Christ did for us on our behalf was acceptable to the Father. We're resting in Him. And even now, He continues to intercede for us. On our behalf. And He's saying wonderful things. Simple things. You've heard me say this before. Sitting at the right hand of the Father saying... John is mine. Brittany's mine. Perry's mine. Matt's mine. Wendy's mine. Bonnie's mine. Xander's mine. Campbell's mine. That's assurance. And then lastly, you have assurance here at the table. We have assurance at the table because having offered himself for us, he now offers himself here to us. It's here at the table that he offers himself to us. This is the table that he has prepared for us. Looking forward to that table that we will where we will eat and drink with him. This is the fellowship meal. Right? He was our fellowship sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. And now we come to partake of the fellowship meal. Where we partake of his body and his blood. And it's through this table. It's through his body and blood that we are, our faith is strengthened and increased. It's here that we're granted grace and the assurance of our salvation. That we have been purchased through his atoning sacrifice. We, we come and what do we do? We get to feel. We, we touch and we smell. We taste. And they are. Nothing magically happens here. The bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But but the Lord Jesus called them his body and his blood. And when we come in faith, we believe truly that we are receiving him. And so just as sure as we feel it, just as sure as we taste it, just as sure as we smell it, we can be assured of our salvation that atonement has been made on our behalf by him. And brothers and sisters, if you're ransacked with guilt, the invitation tonight is to come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with doubt, come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's here that He will help your unbelief. That's assurance. We have a greater assurance. 
in Christ himself, in his resurrection and ascension, and here at his table. He is all we need. Let's pray together.